As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times, now with goals. Hello and welcome to a specially abridged version of uh, the game podcast. And uh, you'll note that it's just uh, my voice you'll hear for the next half hour or so, uh, interspersed with Rory K. Smith. Now, the reason is we're not quite like our old boss, Tony Evans, who complained that there was no football when International Week rolled around, but it does feel like a little bit of a buzzkill, or it did feel, Rory, like a bit of a buzzkill going into it, right? Yeah. Or, or were you one of those people who says like, oh, I need a breather from the excitement and quality football? It's always difficult, this one in particular, because as the club season's kind of getting into the kind of final climax, you then have this this lacuna, which isn't really ideal. Take note, Matthew Syed, lacuna. <laughs> no, but you know, you, you, everything's kind of building up to this crescendo, and then and then it just everything stops for two weeks, and it. I, d- I don't agree that there's no football during the, inter- during the international break and that it's terrible and blah, blah, blah. It, it does come at a slightly unfortunate time in terms of the, like, the momentum of the season. But it's probably been a more interesting international break than quite a lot of people were expecting. And in the first part of this podcast, we're going to be talking specifically about that and England. England playing Germany. I sort of said, like, yeah, this has got a draw, lots of substitutions written all over it. In the first half, it kind of looked that way and then... Germany were, were gifted a goal, which probably shouldn't have stood. Although, the more I watched the replay, the closer I thought. I mean, I still don't think it should have stood, but mm. I kind of give a, a linesman a pass, especially because he's Italian, of course. <laughs> but then in the second half, we saw kind of the England that we'd imagined oh, and we also believed would be really, really difficult to implement. An England that were, they were fearless, they were moving, they were playing technically good football, and Germany just seemed kind of dozed. Yeah, I think the the thing that amongst all the triumphalism that kind of got lost is that the Germans the Germans haven't been amazing in qualifying. Their you know their record in qualifying has not been kind of this well oiled slick machine. The Irish beat them not so long ago, and, and no one's talking about Ireland winning Euro twenty sixteen. Perhaps wrongly, who knows? But the, um, sorry, the Irish didn't play the way the no, English. Played. No, no, no. But so what I was going to say is that, it, and I think the the other thing that was significant was that the German collapse kind of came after they'd started making substitutions. And there is, as you say, there is always that thing in friendlies, once the substitutions come, everyone loses their rhythm. But the way England played was incredibly encouraging. It was the sort of performance that, like you say, that I think people have thought England could be capable of, but maybe not expected they would be capable of. I think it's the sort of performance that really instills a belief in a team that if you, regardless of the circumstance, if you come back from two dollars down in Berlin against the world champions, you're going to start thinking, hang on, we, you know, we, we can do this. You're going to have that confidence. England and confidence have a really interesting relationship, as a, which as an outsider you must recognise, that there is this very fine line between not having enough self-belief. The English don't seem to do kind of the right amount of self-belief. It's either not enough or far too much. 
But I, I think, I mean, and this is a, a whole other issue, but we can get into it since there's nobody else here. It's just me and uh, you, This feels a bit like NPR. <laughs> what strikes me that when you say the right amount of self-belief, I, I'm always fascinated by this because I think it, it very much depends on, and while I, sorry, let me preface this, while generally I think football's a lot, lot less homogenous than it once was, I don't think of the striking differences between countries, I think there still is some level of national aid or, or, or national mm. psyche. And I think self-belief does matter. And then that is one of those issues. And I think different countries need different levels of self-belief. Sense, yeah. I kind of think in England, very broadly speaking, English players need to feel confident to do well. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think, for example, in my own country, in Italy, the less confident we are, the better we do. We have this tremendous fear of failure, mm. which helps you see through yeah, it helps you helps your team go through difficult times. Whereas when when Italy have been quite good or favourites, they've they've often kind of stumbled. People always talk about having you know the right amount of pressure on them. In England, I think it's a very very difficult balance to strike. But generally, English players tend to be happier and tend to play better when they're when they're more confident mm. when they feel strong. Is it, and I, I think that's that's all absolutely correct. I think the problem with international football can be that you probably need different levels of self-belief even within a nation, depending on your opponents. So the last couple of tournaments, we've seen England struggle, but certainly 2010, they struggled almost more against... They were given that, that dream draw, USA, Algeria, Slovenia, and the, the, they simply could not find it within within themselves to kind of rouse themselves to beat these teams that they were expected to beat really easily. And I think that that's the danger, that against Germany, France, Spain, England do need to feel confident. Okay, we're, we're, we're going on a limb here, and Rory's no Jonathan Wilson, and neither am I. When's the last oh, team... about tactics. No, actually, I was going to say, when's the last time England beat a top nation in a competitive tournament? A long time ago. Is, uh, it, is it really a long time ago? Because I was thinking, like, 2014? No. 20, 2012? Did you beat anybody good? Did they beat the French? He's really not Jonathan Wilson. No, I think they drew with the French. It'd be early 2000s that they've actually beaten, and obviously in a knockout game, not for a long, long time. Yeah. Well, I wonder if that almost turns counter to what you just said, though. Because you say, oh, the problem's against little nations, they well, can't rouse themselves, but then you go out, you have it maybe heroic does. defeats against big ones. But then then you get into all the kind of intangible issues. This is going to drive the analytics crowd mad. Things like momentum within the tournament. So if you get off to a, Italy, obviously the past masters are starting badly and then sort of cranking into gear. England tend to start badly and then get worse. Um, the, <laughs> That's so negative. The, no, I just I think that I think that what England did in Berlin was really important. It was a really and there's no question that kind they of, started badly and came back by hook or by crook. There is a talented English generation coming through. That whether it's kind of changing youth development, I don't know. It might just be by accident. But if you look at that England side, there's plenty of young, exciting players. There is reason to be cheerful about the future for England. I'm not an England fan, I should point out. I think that, that England... Because your, your grandfather played for Scotland, is that right? Uh, my grandfather played for Coventry. Uh, no, I'm a... But he was f- Scottish. First and foremost... No, the Scottish side is the other side of my family. First and foremost, I'm a fan of the Yorkshire national team. After independence. After independence. Uh, once once the rest of the country votes to leave Splitter. the European Union, Yorkshire will finally be given its its rights to be independent. Uh, and my international allegiance is to the family. Will the independent Yorkshire join the EU? I'm, I would like to think we would. I would like to think we would, because of trade uh, and the no I think the, the, the issues that face England as a kind of force in major tournaments are more complex than just can we beat the Germans in a friendly I think that's part of it and as I say that result was hugely important because it will give them especially people like Deli Ali and Eric Dyer belief that they can kind of that they can they can do well against the very best teams even when the very best team wasn't at their very best 
but I think there are more complex issues at stake. And also you've got to remember that England isn't the only place in the world that has agency. So in a tournament, you get to the stage where it's not just about how much self-belief. Are the English in the right place in terms of self-belief? It's also, are the Germans, are the Spanish, are the French, are the Belgians, are well, the Italians? Okay, so let's um, we'll, we'll get to Roy Hodgson and some of the choices he's facing in a minute. I want to make a brief detour on, on Germany here. Obviously, they were the world champions, and because we like to go in sort of fads now, they're the you know the, they're the, the German model is the one to follow. Uh, our friend Raphael Honigstein wrote a good book that I'll plug now called Das Reboot, very imaginative, but it is a good book. It does illustrate this. And when the FA do the root and branch reviews, which they do periodically when England failed to win the World Cup, they no doubt go and reference this before. Germany, it was um, Spain. It was Spain. Before Spain, it was France. Before France, it was Holland. It's, just, it's interesting, it, though, isn't it, that no one ever says, let's follow the Argentinian model, which is to get rid of all institutions and just have people play on the street. Or to just play kids in your national division because you produce guys who are good enough and you sell them around the world, and, but whatever else. That said, though, what's interesting about Germany, if you look at it from their perspective, is A, their record in friendlies is absolutely atrocious. I don't know if anybody went through the trouble like, before you get all excited. They lost at home to the United States, who, as we're recording this, are one defeat away from failing to qualify for the 2018 World Cup. They lost at home to Argentina, which yeah, is Argentina, but they still gave up four goals. Uh, they drew at home with that other world power, Australia. Um, they lost to France, although I think that was away. And as you mentioned, they're in, the, in qualifying, of course, they lost to, the, to, to Ireland. Drew with the Scots, didn't they? Yeah, this is all pretty bad. And, and I look at the German team as well. And after Hummels came off, and Hummels is a guy that I, he has a special place in my heart. I absolutely love him as a player. But he's got enormous flaws as a defender, which mm-hmm. are obvious to anybody who actually watches him play every week, even though he's doing better than, than he was a year ago. Once you get past Hummels, you have Jonathan Tahu. I think he's, he's got a great future in the game, but his presence is international level, not quite the same. And then they brought in Antonio Rudiger. Now, Antonio Rudiger plays for Roma in Serie A. He's phenomenally athletic, but nobody would look at him and, and say, I mean, like, for him to get into the Italy side, he would have to go and wear a Giorgio Chiellini mask. There's, there's just no way, right? He's got, he's got enormous flaws. And I look at that, but and then I look up front, and up front, it's Mario Gomez, who's scoring a bazillion goals this year. In Turkey, after having had two horrendous seasons at Fiorentina in, injury. in Serie A. Yeah, no, but even when fit, he wasn't good. But more importantly, he's a target man mm-hmm. who needs a certain type. Of, he doesn't really fit. But yet, Yogi Love has to call him because his other strikers are Kevin Folland, who's been described as being promising for years. Mm-hmm. Mario Götze, who might have scored a goal in the World Cup final, but isn't a center forward and regardless can hardly get off the bench at, at, uh, at Bayern Munich. I mean, myself... We're at the we're at like peak Germany, right? They're mm. producing all these phenomenal players. They just can't seem to produce center forwards and center backs. Well, the, What's the, up with that? The one name you, you've forgotten obviously is Jerome Boateng, who is right. He's injured. He's injured, but, but he's but, also twenty seven. I don't think he's a product necessarily of this revolution. But, but okay, but, fine. But Boateng, Boateng could, can be the outlier. You right? can make an argument that Boateng is the best central defender in the world. I will make that argument. Boateng and Bonucci for me are the two best central yeah. defenders in the world. But what I'm saying is. It's kind of extraordinary, right? Yeah, but this is... When you look at the depth they have in other positions. This is a fascinating issue, and I think Germany's probably just a really kind of extreme example of the tendency now. And Wenger's spoken about it a million times. Miguel Delaney has written about it a million times. Of the tendency now of European academies, particularly in kind of places like Holland and Germany, and I would say England as well, to churn out technically gifted midfielders. That is where the emphasis is. Anytime you see... You speak to people involved in youth coaching anywhere in Europe... 
and they say that the tendency is in academies once you see that you've got a player at whatever age 10 12 13 who is obviously a gifted footballer they tend to drift into one of those midfield roles so you get this this overbalance between midfield and defence and attack Venger says that the only places that are sort of creating strikers and central defenders is South America I read something this morning in a paper that is published not far from where we're sitting now and is a broadsheet which said that Hodgson will take five strikers I think you don't take five strikers I think you take four strikers and you say that if you really need a fifth striker you have Theo Walcott Here's the issue I have with such pronouncements when we talk about strikers we presume Hodgson will play 4-2-3-1 That's likely, yeah A guy like Welbeck do you consider him a striker? Do you consider him a winger? What's Sterling? Sterling Sterling counts as a winger. Sterling won't play up front for England. Okay, so Sterling's a winger. Is yeah. Welbeck a winger? Welbeck's a tricky one. Welbeck Welbeck will definitely be in the squad. Well, does he count against your four or not? My four would probably be probably be not that necessarily. I would, but I think Hodgson will pick will be Kane, Rooney, Vardy, and Welbeck. So no Sturridge. I, I think he might take storage if he ta- because I think he might take five. But I think taking five strikers, if especially even if you're playing four 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 two or two up front, I think five strikers is excessive. One man up front a lot of the time, or some of the time, you definitely don't need five. It's silly. You need options in other places. And England are lucky that they have people like Welbeck and Walcott who can fit into lots of different roles. It's really interesting in terms of the number of, of people to take um, because I remember France, I don't know if it was 2014 or 2010, they took three centre-backs. And there was an argument, there's a guy named Jonathan Liu who, who writes for The Telegraph, who, and he made the point that because centre-back pairings, you tend not to substitute your centre-backs. It doesn't make sense to bring your fourth centre-back because that guy will never play. And, you know, and he provided a lot of data, whereas people tend to substitute strikers for a million mm. reasons. The problem I have with that logic is that one of when one of your centre-backs is missing, and over the course of seven games, the likelihood of a guy getting, one guy gets injured, one guy gets suspended, all of a sudden, you either have to put a midfielder there or you're screwed. And then it becomes a disastrous eventuality. It's almost like insurance, right? It's almost like the reason we bring, you know, why bring a third goalkeeper? That dude's never going to play, right? So I kind of feel that you have to bring four centre-backs. Agreed. Uh, and if you want to count Stones as a right-back and, you know, but look, we can play centre-half, fine. So, of course, that takes away from your flexibility among the strikers. I think the, other th- I think the, one, the one thing that maybe England do have is players who can fill in. So... If you Milner, you're talking. Well, no, play a million positions. But well, Milner can. I I think on form, Milner probably doesn't deserve to go. I think he'll be captain. We're recording this Tuesday afternoon. He'll I think he'll, he'll be captain against Holland, uh, which suggests that he is going to go. I'm not sure that as a first choice, if you were to pick four central midfielders or even five central midfielders, Milner would necessarily get in on form. But I think Milner will go partly because of his versatility. But if you take right back as an example, Klein is the first choice. Uh, I think Stones can play there. Milner can play that. Eric Dyer can play that. So I think there is a versatility which gives yeah. them. But against Slovakia, Paddy Barkley, wanted Flanagan at right back. Uh, that is incorrect. Uh, the uh, <laughs> he the, did. The, no, it's correct that he did. It's an incorrect shout. Uh, the are you wearing tights? What? No, this is these aren't tight. This is the, the, this is this is lycra. I'm wearing shorts over them. Why are you wearing lycra? Because I walked here this morning. I see. This is from d- my home in Chelsea, yes. Yes, I see. Very good. That's admirable. I got the train and I'm wearing jeans. It's because you live in Manchester. It's probably would have taken you much longer to walk here. Uh, so I think, I think England are fortunate to an extent that they have that flexibility. And that might mean that Hodgson can, for example, take away the, the specialist right back that he might take as substitute to Klein. Although that's harsh on Kyle Walker. And take an extra strike, right. in which case, fine. Oh, Klein, Walker, it's all boring. Let's talk Rooney, which is far more interesting. No. Um, Rooney, look, the Rooney debate's not a debate. Rooney's going. 
Rooney will probably play if he's fit. He's the captain, R- right, rightly or wrongly. Are you satisfied with that approach? No, because I don't think I. I think that the thing, one of the things that is sort of holding them before below the waterline for too long is that they have this tendency that's, that it's a really sort of retro tendency that most countries have grown out of of selecting the best eleven players rather than the best eleven. And I don't think Rooney's necessarily in the best eleven. I don't think Rooney gets. Is he into, one of the best eleven players? If you don't select the best eleven players, you probably don't you don't play central defender because they're not as technically gifted as all the attackers. I think there's definitely been a kind of seduction by by Stardust for England England managers. And I thought what was really encouraging about Berlin was that because of Rooney's injury, Hodgson seemed to hit upon a team that that had a sort of distinct style and that worked uh, without Rooney in it. So I think he, Hodgson's got a really difficult decision to make but there's no question there's no question if he's fit that Rooney goes and I think it's 95% certain that if Rooney's fit and he's in the squad which he will be if he's fit then he will play because he's the captain I want to throw two concepts out to you one is that there is a whole history in major tournaments of guys who miss most of the season through injury or bad form or whatever and then they start getting fit in like April and then they go in and they have monster tournaments yep. especially good players I can so buy that yeah We've we've seen that. So it could be that Hodgson's thinking of Rooney fitting into that category. But there's an interesting concept, which Graziano Pelle spoke about this vis-a-vis Conte. Italy have kind of had to do this because we've got, don't have good players right now. We've got, well, we have maybe half a dozen good players and, and the rest are pretty meh. But this idea that you pick your team for your two-year cycle and you say, this is my national team. And it becomes like a club side. Mm. You tell the guys, if you're fit, VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You'll always be called, and you'll always have a chance to win your starting spot. You don't have to worry about that. And then maybe you add in a couple guys if there's major injuries or losses of form or whatever, somebody. But Belé talked about how that took all the pressure off him vis-a-vis Italy. And so he's produced more and played better when he's when he's had to play for Italy. You know, he's in competition for his starting spot, but there's never any question of him going. That seems to me the opposite approach to what's been taken in England and the opposite to the conventional wisdom. And again, maybe you can get away with it if you're Italy because... You know, it's kind of like, do I call this mediocre player or that (laughs) mediocre player? But I just wanted to know what you thought about that. And given what you said earlier about the England players all lacking confidence and whatever, if there isn't some element where these guys underperform and they play for England because so many of them are looking over their shoulder. 
So like Kale's looking over his shoulder. Smalling, Klein, all these guys, right? Then nobody said to them, you will definitely start. And maybe what he's doing with Rooney is saying, like, look, Wayne, you're playing. The thing is that I think there's with pitching an international team, there's there's so many different ways you can do it and there's so many different choices you can make about kind of your policy. I'm not sure that, that one is right. There's not like a, a one-size-fits-all system. Yeah, there never is. There's pros so, and cons with each so you, one. So you can say, like, it's best to wait until kind of April and then say, right, who is in the best form, who's, who, who's at the peak of fitness, all that stuff. Let's build a side around them because they don't, they'll have the momentum, they'll have the confidence. You can take the Conte approach, which is kind of here are my 20 guys. He said, I think he said today he's got 16 certainties. These are the 16 core players that I will take. And then the other seven are kind of... Yeah, but it's the same 16 dudes yeah. that there was two years ago. All of them are Roberto Soriano. Yeah. Fine. Yeah, there's that approach. You can Let's find a system to cram in the 11 most famous people we've heard of, which was how England was run between 2000 and 2012. Or you can say, right, we're actually going to sort of find the, the core of a club side or we're going to take you know these players, does this system works for, for this player to get the best out? There's loads of different ways of doing it. I think that there is a balance to be struck. I quite like the idea of an international team being run like a club site. As I say, I don't think any of them are wrong. I don't think any of them are perfectly right. But then there'd be no room for like a Sturridge or a Vardy. That's no, what but in, in a club site, if, if a youth team player is on hot street of form, then you, you find a way to cram them in, don't you? You find a way to you adapt your plan you to what is... a couple guys in, you can't cram like 10 people in. Realistically, you're not going to get, in the course of a two-year cycle, you're not going to get 10 players who suddenly hit this incredible street of form. England have kind of Vardy... Kane, kind of, but not really. Ali. Al- Ali and Vardy are the two, and maybe Dyer are the two or three who've kind of really emerged over the last, sort of unexpectedly, over the last year or so. Even Kane, who's a relatively so new So then addition. if you're Henderson, you look over your shoulder and you're like, hmm, is this guy coming yeah, from my then, spot? Yeah, but then you've got that argument about, is it better to have... Is it? Does it undermine you if you're not sure about your place, or is it better to keep, to keep you on your toes? And different managers will well, tell you There's a broader things. argument too, maybe one for the analytics people. Does it really make any freaking difference if it's if it's Henderson or Ali sitting in front of the back four? Sorry, uh, Henderson, Henderson or Dyer. Dyer. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it probably doesn't make a huge amount of difference. I guess it, the it's easy to be fooled by perspective and short term memory. But yeah, it probably doesn't make a vast amount of difference. It's been it's, it's been a bit of a melancholy uh, weekend, and you know, just because they took our Premier League away from us. But uh, obviously, football lost one of its uh, greatest ever players um, a lot of people including myself have argued that he's perhaps the most influential footballer of all time not just for what he did as a player but afterwards as a, as a, as a coach even though that only lasted 10 and a half seasons but really as a, as a figure in football that was of course the passing of, of Johan Cruyff uh, last Thursday I went back and I looked at I looked at some YouTube of them there's um there's one guy who made um it's exactly 14 minutes long which is rather fitting and uh, it's just set to music, just Cryf playing. And, and it struck me that the remarkable, one of the remarkable, one of the many remarkable things about Johan Cryf was that, as a Cryf the player, that is, he was unlike anything that came before. And what I admired most about him was, was just, he had this incredible athleticism to him, which, you know, so it was almost like a bad word, you know, but he could do things with his body that other people could not, and other people had not done before. I mean, he really was outside the mould as a physical specimen. I, I was too, I'm too young to have seen. Did you see Cruyff play? No. So I, I remember the Barcelona Dream Team in 94, the one that tonked Manchester United, and that being my kind of footballing education and thinking, oh my God, does the 
because that was like football in England in the early 1990s did not look like a lot of fun. Especially but, where you lived, where it was all Carl Schutt and oh Jerry my God, Speed. Don't, and let's not get excited about Carl Schutt. Chapman. Schutt and Chapman. What a, what a strike force. And still name that league. Chris thing. White. Nigel Martin. Chris Kind of good. No, no, no. Martin came later. John Lukic was the title winning keeper. Regardless. Uh, and a lovely man, John Lukic. But no, Cruyff. Yeah, I agree with you completely. He's, he, for me, he's the best player that Europe's ever produced. And we should we should remind everybody that Eusebio was born in, in Mozambique yes. and Beckenbauer is a defender. And, and Cristiano, the, and before but before Duncan gets 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 <laughs> bent out of shape, we're leaving you out of the equation because your career isn't over yet, and you've got many many more glorious chapters to write. Exactly, I would actually say that, and again, not, it's impossible to judge across the ages because it's, it's it's not far off a different game. Eusebio, I also obviously never saw play. Uh, I would say that Cruyff was. Was a more significant figure in football history than, than Eusebio, although Eusebio was enormously significant. You know, it's, it's not a zero sum game. But Cruyff certainly is a manager. His his conception of football, I think, is what made him stand apart. But what there's two things that have really interested me, and it's you know it's five days after now that he, since he died, and and sort of having absorbed so much of the coverage and there's been so many different types of of tribute paid to him, and it's it's actually quite quite moving. Football does saccharine very well, but occasionally it gets the pitch just right. And I think I think a lot of the tributes to Cruyff have been not far off. I think is interesting. Cruyff didn't invent the Cruyff turn. This is a massive misconception. It's not like before 1974 World Cup and Jan Olsen, uh, no one had ever flipped the ball between their legs. Um, I think what Cruyff did, and this ties in with the the athleticism and his elasticity of movement, his suppleness, uh, no one did it with that grace on that stage, at that speed, and with such kind of elan. I think that's why it's called the Cruyff turn. Is, Is there another player who's got a trick named after them? I don't think there is. Not not globally. Right, we stand to be corrected, and please let us know if we get this wrong. But, but you've um, got Chilena, Olimpico. No, I mean, but you know, there's, there's Zidane's roulette, but you know, again, he didn't invent it, but it's not called the Zidane. You no, know? It's, it's just called, yeah. And on Pro Evo 1997, the, the act of doing two step overs was called a McManaman step over, which I thought was very ambitious. <laughs> um, but Freud, that that was what he did. I think he took the artistic side of the game uh, to, to new heights, and he showed in a sport that was kind of suffocating a little bit with Catanaccio, with Herrera, with kind of the muscularity the Brazilians were adopting, Cruyff injected, and that total football team. Although, as Simon Cooper would tell us, it's actually to be called Hollandia Steel, I think, is the actual title. They never called it total football. And he injected that beauty back into it, um, and then that continued throughout his career as a coach. But the other thing that's been looked over with this desire to kind of characterise him as a pure artist. Cruyff was a winner. Like, Cruyff wanted to win. That was, if I spoke to Miguel Ángel Nadal the day he died, and he said the first thing that he did was teach Barcelona how to win, that as a player and as a coach. He wanted to win games. There's a quote from him that the first thing he did when he took over at Barcelona was sign four Basques, because Basques aren't afraid of anybody, and he wanted the opponents to know that, they were gonna, that Barcelona were going to give them hell. And I think that's a side to Cruyff that is, is easy to overlook, that everything... The beauty, the artistry, the craft, the dial came about through winning. I think Cruyff would want to be remembered as a winner. I tweeted last week that my favourite Cruyff quote is that he, at 4-0 down, he said he always tried to hit the bar because it was more fun for the fans to go, ooh, than just to sort of clap and cheer another goal. And that's always used as kind of evidence of his artistry, his artistic heart. They were 4-0 up at the time, and that's really important. I want to touch upon something which I learned a long time ago, that the single biggest lie or perpetrated in the footballing world, is this idea that history remembers the winners. And for me, Cruyff is the ultimate example of that. I always mention the fact that probably the four best teams I've ever seen at the World Cup were in reverse order. Brazil 82, Holland 74, Brazil 70, and Hungary 54. 
and only Brazil 70 actually won the World Cup, and yet those teams loom so large. People, despite the fact that they made a movie out of the Germany 54 team, people remember very little about that other than some pretty nasty stuff, which we won't get into. But they remember that Hungary team. The Holland 74 side, Cruyff came out and afterwards, there's a quote where he basically said that, you know, we won because people remember us and they won't remember them. And to some degree, despite Beckenbauer and Zep Meyer and all that stuff, it's kind of true. Yeah. We still talk about this. We don't talk about Germany 74. No, but it's also it's the influence it, that that team had on the game, isn't it? It's the influence that, but, but, that but we still here, feel. Here's another question, though. What, what I don't get about Cruyff was, if Cruyff had been born in England or if he'd been born in Italy, what, what fascinates me is there was obviously a before, but you always need certain conditions, right? So Cruyff did not, he wasn't born into a raise into a great footballing culture. And I wonder if A, because Holland's, well, weren't Holland in the mm. mid-60s when he, when he uh, you know, started making his debut, started making a name for himself. So I wonder, A, if in some ways that helped him, the fact that, you know, it was almost like a, like a blank slate and, and he was writing Holland's history. But also if he was extremely fortunate that he ran into Renus Michels, who, of course, a lot of people credit as the father of total football or whatever Simon Cooper called it. Holland's steel. <laughs> Exactly. And maybe if he'd been born in Brazil or if he'd been born elsewhere, he would have developed separately. Um, I remember Michels giving an interview where where he said that Cruyff helped sell total football, that that philosophy would have still been there. It would have still been successful to a point, but it might not have been might not have been as emulated or as accepted. And the ideas might not have percolated elsewhere as efficiently if he hadn't had, you know, the world's greatest player at the time playing in, 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 in at the heart of it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the old debate about how many great steers are born in deserts, isn't it? That if Michels had conceived a total football but not had the generation to play it, then it wouldn't have worked. And I think that's absolutely true. And particularly, you need that symbol. You need that sort of, that sexy symbol. There's no better word for it, I think, to seduce the general public. And Cruyff, Cruyff was that. And then all the other nations and Johnny Rep, they all kind of fitted in around... Cruyff, but without Cruyff, maybe, yeah, maybe it doesn't happen. I agree with you completely about the blank slate aspect of it, that I think if he'd been born in Brazil or England or Germany or Italy, where there was kind of a strong football culture, he would have, I guess there would have been a risk that he'd have been made to fit a profile rather than being allowed to develop his own. That's probably really important. But it, yeah, it's, it's nature and it's nurture, because Vic Buckingham, who was one of his first coaches, I think his first coach who gave him his debut at Ajax, um, and brought him into the youth setup. Buckingham said that he never took any credit for the style, but Buckingham was a very kind of forward-thinking coach, and he wanted to encourage a sort of pass-and-move style. The the sort of lineage of it is from Tottenham's push-and-run in the 50s through to total football is is undeniable. And Buckingham encouraged it. He, he never took any credit, but I think the fact that it could have been that, you know, Cruyff might have come into an Ajax team who'd been taken over by a disciplinarian coach who wanted to play a, a much more kind of robust system but he didn't he turned up at a club that was right for his style of football it fitted perfectly wherever wherever he was born whatever he'd become Johan Cruyff would always have been an extraordinary footballer he might just not have been the, the sort of totemic figure that he became I think arguably there have been three huge tactical leaps forward that, that have been emulated and have actually this is the Jonathan Wilson bit let's go in the last half century the, the, the three big sort of tactical light bulbs have been Total Football, Sakis Milan, and, 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 and Guardiola's Barcelona. And what's remarkable is that Cruyff played in one, was the architect of one. Arrigo Saki has never hidden the fact that he was inspired 
and he took a lot of his ideas from total football, but also the Ajax side of the mid-'80s that Cruyff coached. And, and of course, Pep Guardiola. I mean, I remember going to see Pep in, in Qatar back in 2004 where he said that, you know, if he had never met Johan Cruyff, he would have never become a top-flight footballer. Um, he would have been some schlub in the third division passing the ball sideways over and over again. And, and this was before he became Pep, the, <laughs> the commodity manager. So I think for those reasons, there's no question we had one of the most influential figures in history. And there was, I don't want to say necessarily a dark side, but obviously with every yin, there's, there's a yang. I am also completely fascinated by this man's terrifying stubbornness. One story that I was reminded of is 1982, his career's nearly coming to an end, or it is basically at an end, he's 35 or whatever, and he wants a new contract from Ajax to play one more season. And Ajax say, Johan, we can pay you this much, we can give you one year, and he says, no, I'm worth more than that. And what does he do? He walks out and he joins Feyenoord, their arch rivals. What does he do at Feyenoord? He has, obviously not the best season of his career, but he has a tremendous season, scores double figures and goals, and Feyenoord win the double. And that is how he walks out of football. And because he's still Cruyff, a year and a half later, he goes back and he and he gets the job as manager of Ajax. I, I don't know many people who can do that. You know, I, I imagine Steven Gerrard at the end saying, oh, no, guess what? I'm going to go play for United next season. The, and then two years later, I'm going to go and replace Brendan. It, uh, uh, can you? I mean, I, it's 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 hard. It's impossible to wrap your head around stuff no, it's, like it, this. And, is it? and it is the sort of the game, the way the game's drawn. This sounds like an old man's complaint, but the way the game's drawn makes it impossible. Like, it, it probably was not impossible, seventies and eighties, possibly before that. But no, there's, look, there's no question that, that Cruyff's kind of strength of character is is an indelible part of his legacy. You know that the cliche that Dutch players are all strong-headed and and all that that and strong-minded and strong-willed. That comes from Cruyff. That all all that comes from Cruyff. He was the first brand player. The, one of my favourite things about Johan Cruyff is the two stripes in 1974, because he wouldn't wear an Adidas kit because he had a, a, a sponsorship deal with somebody else. Was it Puma? I don't know. I can't remember. But the um, he had a sponsorship deal with somebody else, so he won't wear the two stripe kit. Uh, and the quote is that everyone knows that the third stripe is Cruyff himself. And he was he was this is the early, early late sixties, early seventies. He was powerfully aware of his brand. And if you look at it kind of, it's not just that Cruyff created huge swathes of modern football. I think Cruyff created a vast part of the modern footballer as well. Would Van Halen be the way he is without Cruyff? Nothing would be this, the way it is without Cruyff. Which is it's just, it's just fascinating. I mean, and I, I was, obviously, he issued a statement. We'll never know because of the relationship between two people, one of whom is gone, the other one's a pretty private, headstrong person. But I wonder if that dichotomy, that really genuine bad blood, which mm. existed between the two for so long, and, and no doubt was based on tremendous respect. I just wonder, though, and I'm going to get all philosophical here, but when you're about to die and you're facing the prospect of your own mortality, does that make you wonder, you know what? Is it really worthwhile keeping grudges? Is it really, are all these sort of 20, 30 years of acrimony really worth it? Thank you for joining us for this rather different game podcast. We'll be back next week at a normal time uh, with normal people and no Rory K. Smith. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away.
Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.